Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Professor Gary Robson, who's a professor of sociology at the ancient uh, Jagiellonian University's Institute for American Studies in Krakow, Poland. He has taught at universities in the UK and Poland since 1995, written widely on a variety of subjects. We'll be discussing the global elite technocracy and, and his absolutely must-read fantastic book on the matter, Virtually Lost Young Americans in the Digital Technocracy. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And thank you for saying such nice things about my book. No, honestly, you 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 sent me um uh a, a copy and I've been reading it and like I I you know I mean it. It's it's really, you know, on par. You cite all of the people that we're all familiar with, the, the Patrick Woods, Ian Davis, who writes for me on occasion, Whitney Webb, like all, you know, H.G. Wells. So it's really a must-read book. It, it gets down into the nitty-gritty of this insane scientific um, dictatorship. And then the hard part now is is where to begin. There's so much in your book, but, you know, m maybe one place to start kind of chronologically. And I know it goes back much further, but uh, for me, one pl interesting place to start is this: the creation of the internet. Right? You talk about ARPA, DARPA, and I, and I think you would agree. Other, you know, smart people like Dr. Mercola also has this thesis, and this is mine as well. That I think from the get-go, DARPA and the military, their goal for the internet, their express goal from the beginning was to create a surveillance, a global surveillance and control. Grid. I think this is now becoming obvious. So maybe that's one yes. place to start. What do you think? Yes, I think that's right. I think we could take it back one stage further uh, for context, which is one of the things I discovered when I was researching for the book. Is I found uh, a great book, is a neglected book by um, Douglas um, Noble. It's called The Classroom Arsenal. And in this book, I discovered that he, the argument that he made, it's an old book now, it's just been reissued, it's from the 90s. <clears throat> what he shows is that from a very basic desire of the, uh, especially of the Air Force, of the US Air Force, to integrate fallible humans in like training systems, in pra training programs, to try and overcome the fallibility of humans. Uh, the idea from the beginning, before ARPANET and all of that, was to figure out ways of making machine, man-machine systems, as they were then called, man-machine systems in which were integrated with the human as the secondary facilitating element. So I think one long term, I think one of the things that's got us to where we are now is this long term attempt, which has now been achieved, I would argue, if you read like Shoshana Zuboff's book of many things now, of the things that people are writing now that show that um, your individual uh, screen user, especially if they are children, which is one of the, the big focus in my book, uh, are very close now to be uh, becoming um, automatable elements in a kind of closed uh, cybernetic system through the screen. So I think we could trace this up in it, the trajectory from this seems to me to come from right after the, uh, the, the middle part of the century when it was the, the when the, mili the military kind of dynamic was to just integrate humans into machine human systems in a, and, and that starts in a kind of clumsy way. But by the time we get to the 60s and the whole cybernetic era, and uh, I think cybernetics comes earlier, but ARPANET and, and all of that, there's already a, a quite a long track record and trial and error process of trying to set up cybernetic human-machine interfaces in which uh, the human becomes as uh, automatable and predictable and manageable as the machinery. So 
this seems to me to be an important kind of uh, older, deeper context for what's, what seems to have happened. And what seems to have happened is, uh, I mean, it's clear, it's clear that uh, why wouldn't, why wouldn't uh, the military or other kind of state elements want to have enhanced, um, super kind of detailed um, surveillance of citizens? It goes way back. I mean, Michel Foucault, who I'm not a great fan of, but still, uh, he writes about how the uh, early in an earlier period, from the eighteen uh, from the eighteen hundreds on, states start to expand bureaucracies and run kind of more modern or modern looking societies. And for that, you need data and information on citizens. You can't even run a basic thing like a, a you know a basic social social institutions in modern settings unless you have maximal or increasingly reliable and, and kind of expanding information on citizens. So I take the surveillance uh, kind of, of citizens to be a basic sort of imperative of states or states associated actors. And then uh, the best thing I read about all of that was uh, Yasha Levin's book, uh, Surveillance Valley, where he lays it out nice, nice and clear. The um, setting up of ARPANET, <clears throat> the kind of simul more or less simul simultaneous uh, uprisings around the world in the kind of post or anti-colonial movements, the beginnings of something that looks like, looks like a lot of revolutionary uh, activity at home in the, in the 60s, including, you know, the quite some actually, some rhetorically dangerous groups, but also some actually dangerous, you've got, you've got Bill Ayers and all of that, you've got people wanting to start to throw bombs around. So, uh, it would make sense to me just that uh, that technology would then be used to to uh, to do that. And then the real classic example, I think, is that one of LifeLog, you know, the LifeLog story. So that all happens. Uh, it, it, that seems to have been a kind of key moment where everything becomes clear, in a sense. You can see that uh, there are powerful agencies wanting to set up a system whereby people will surveil themselves. Uh, put data about what they've been eating, who they know, where they've been going, what they're thinking voluntarily into a, a kind of a very early version of the internet, earlier, kind of earlier version of the internet. And um, they're doing all that under the LifeLog project, aren't they? And then they close the LifeLog project and then like a week later or within even less than a week, I mean, uh, a guy called Zuckerberg turns up with, with a thing called Facebook. So... What you can see there, I think, is the real tried and trusted system, and it's a smart system whereby the authorities seed fund or uh, identify promising young innovators, fund them, wait for the good stuff to come, and then kind of that's the cycle, isn't it? I think it's a fairly clear cycle. That so the, the Facebook and the rest of them then look like look like very logical outcomes of this. An experimental use uh, of the, the state actors go where the energy is, where the innovation is, pay for it to develop, and then reap the benefits. Uh, in, in that cycle, you can see lifelong leading into Facebook and everything that's happened since. I think fairly clearly. I think it seems like a fairly clear uh, line of development. Yeah, and you know, I, th I think I think looking back. Um... We can see now this has all been a sinister project where we're, we're sold this idea that this has been some sort of natural technological evolution. But, you, you know, this cybernetics, I had a guest on recently, it's steeped in uh, occultism and esotericism and, and paganism. And 
uh really it's they want just total control of all humanity and and, and the planet you and you know you go into your book you, t- you know hg wells he was obsessed with world government based uh you know on the basis of a eugenicist uh ideology uh and there's just so many great quotes in your book you know, i'll just read another one you know you write quote technocracy is starting to look a lot like an idea whose time has come for both its aspiring architects and practitioners as they edge ever closer to realizing their perfect system and in public and intellectual discourse since the official description of and global response to the covid pandemic have made it difficult to ignore but simply the historical dreams of full spectrum surveillance social control and the management of human resources advocated uh, advanced by technocrats of various kinds are becoming realizable thanks to the technological stage we have reached with the advent of social um physics so it, it seems like we're getting really close to them you know you go into the book you talk about technocracy the movement back in the day uh so you know your your further thoughts on and technocracy and then how close we are um getting to to this to their um nightmare <laughs> nightmare vision <laughs> uh, i think you can trace the the ideal i think people um i go for this quite long history of it in the book which we don't need to go into now i guess but uh, i think that what is happening now and i think the smartphone the, the internet and the smartphone are really the twin pillars of this and none of this could really be happening if people weren't so uh Hadn't get hadn't submitted to the smartphone as a as a essential part of their life, and act- it would be much more difficult to pull this off, wouldn't it? So, I think that uh, people there's the in the long history of the I- development of the idea and the dream of technocracy, uh, you get these highlight moments like as Patrick Wood really brought to everybody's attention. Uh, you get the Technocracy Inc. movement of the 1930s or peaked in the 1930s, and in the and they kind of more or less lay out a plan. There's no technology for it. There's, we're still in the period of like those old tabulating machines and uh, punch cards and all of that, of the kind that IBM leased to the Nazis, you know, that kind of more primitive pro- pre-computer technology. Um, and But they had a plan, and the plan was that you could reorganise the entire system, uh, replace the, uh, the money economy with an energy credit-based economy, and the means to get this done was, would be to have full-time uh, continuous surveillance of all the consumption habits of everybody in the, in the United States and in Canada, because there, there was a Canadian branch, wasn't there, uh, run by Elon Musk's uh, grandfather, actually, strangely enough. But Elon Musk is perhaps another question. Um, so the idea was really there. The idea is kind of fully formed in the 1930s, if not before, but you see it. And... Looking back now from where we are, these dreams of uh, 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 data-based surveillance and control-based management of populations were were very clearly set and have been clearly set for a long time. And it took, I would say, the internet and then the smartphone to make it realisable because now if you go through the list of a lot of the things that the... um, the Technocracy Inc. people said you would need to bring this new system into being. We've got almost everything now. Almost all of the elements. The elements all seem to be there, pretty much. Um, And so the smartphone is something I I became kind of obsessed with over the year. I mean, I've got three kids. I've had to deal with the kind of... There's a lot in my book about uh, what the smartphone means for young people and children in the process of their formation. 
And uh, so I, by, I think we may be getting, I, I'm not so pessimistic. I think we've had some wins. I mean, humanity at large has had some wins insofar as a lot of this really nefarious stuff that was been behind the curtain for a long time has become much more visible. Um, I'm, I'm sensing some more reaction to, or more people joining up some more dots. And we'll see where that goes. But in, in terms of trying to get, to get back to your question, my view would be that if, if I was one of these uh, technocrats, one of the members of the uh, whatever, whatever we call them, I started to call them the uh, owners and controllers of financialized global capital after a guy called Shahid Bolson, who was, a, I think, a very interesting commentator, a uh, uh, geopolitical commentator. And it's a bit of a mouthful, but, you know, if you write it down, it's okay. But I don't, I don't want to call them elites anymore because I think it's – and what's elite about them apart from their kind of – Psycho, there's nothing elite about them except for their money, I think. So uh, here's what I've been thinking recently, uh, apropos your question. It's And it's connected, I think, to um, what Huxley wrote in Brave New World, which is the entrainment. I think it will become much more doable and manageable from the perspective of, that, of those groups or that network if young people can be entrained from early childhood into... Uh, acceptance of the system as a whole without and and he has in there he has that thing about doesn't he uh, famously of uh, slaves coming to love or uh, embrace their own slavery and regard it as pleasure so if you think of a smartphone as some uh, like soma in in that book the kind of drug that keeps everybody happy or keeps everybody uh, in a kind of headspace where they are manageable um then what i would do if i was one of those people would be to spend a lot pay a lot of attention to children and young people uh and carry on with this conditioning through the phone which i'm i'm pretty sure is real through social with social physics and all of that uh and i think that's where the woke stuff comes in as well I don't know if we want to talk about that but it's i think the kind of the entrainment in terms of um a couple of things one would be the kind of ideological conformity with the system as it is expanding the kind of managerial wokeism woke system Two, the increasing uh, success with which the actors behind the screen are being able to automate our behaviours at the screen, our responses, what we do, automate our and also automate our emotional responses, especially if we're young and, and not fully formed and don't know one thing from another. Um, and uh, I think I'm rambling a bit, but what I want to say is I don't know how close we are, uh, but it's rather worrying, as we all know. And I think that the, the key to one of the keys to preventing it, which I, is a big ask, given the, the predominance and naturalization of the smartphone and everything that goes with it, uh, would be to really try and dis, dis, uh, focus on children. And now I don't have any particular great plan for that, apart from trying to get get getting them to do things outside the matrix, in their bodies together, you know, all kinds of things, playing sports, making jazz music together, cooking for whatever it is. I think we need to get children out of that. Those, and I, this is not easy, but I've got a 14-year-old in the other room, so I know what it's like, how difficult it is. Um, Just to add on that, you know, I feel that's what I'm already doing. You know, we're, we're homeschooling with other people, um, and our, our kids generally don't do the technology stuff. Um, they're already playing piano, violin, um, 
going out and about, you know, cooking yesterday, they were making their own tea bags from scratch, you know, and so stuff like this, as you said, and you mentioned in your book, I, I taught I was in education for 10 years. So I see everything you're you're saying you mentioned Steve Jobs, uh, the, the head of Wired magazine. They sent their kids to analog schools with no uh, electronic technology, and it's it's interesting to see now. I, I've read reports. I think in some places in England, uh, they've banned cell phones finally in some schools, which is uh, surprising. But uh, I, I think you're entirely correct. Uh, and and um, just on the note of the smartphone, since you brought it up. I talk often of the algorithm ghetto. You know, you mentioned Edwin Black in your book. I've got his books behind me. I've had him on the podcast three years ago uh, to talk about. Uh, I love his term is my favorite algorithm ghetto. People call it cyber gulag, electronic concentration camp, social credit system. And yeah. I think the, the key nodes are for this control system is the smartphone. As you yes. say, it's the smartphone. Without a smartphone, this wouldn't be possible. So no, none of it happens without a smartphone. Yeah, and I, yeah. I had a Dr. Aaron Hariati on not long ago. He said the same thing with the with the, this is you know since with the iPhone in two thousand eight or nine. That was you know when when it uh, began. So it's the smartphone, and then and then it's going to be the digital ID that all countries now are are, are pushing. So smartphone linked. That's the device, the the, the vehicle, and then you have yeah. your identity system. It's your digital yeah. ID, which is linked to all of your identity, public uh, and, and and private, right? Your your driver's license, your 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 identity as a citizen, um, and then the financial account. Uh, you know, yeah. I, one of these elites at one of those forums recently mentioned this. So either it's going to be your bank account, or if they're talking about CBDCs, if it's not, you know, if they get rid of banks, it'll be your direct account with the central bank or some fintech option. Uh, you know, would you agree? Uh, that, that that those are the key options, and, and people say, and this could be done in any country. People say, "Oh, the third world, you know, you can escape for a while." But I mean, look what they're doing in Africa. Here in Mexico, like tomorrow, the, the government can Although just say. If you look at what's just happened in Nigeria, you can. There, there seems to be some rebellion against 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 the whatever it was, whatever they call it in Nigeria. They they they're they're having trouble getting it implemented in Nigeria, as I understand. But no, I think that that's going to be the. That's the framework, and um, we've had, we've already had a kind of a taste of this in Britain. Or they, I don't live there now, but uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you followed the whole Nigel Farage debanking. Right, so it turns out once he made it, he's turned out to be a very significant political actor again. Uh, after being put out to pasture, and he's back now, and, and, and now it turns out that thousands of people are coming forward and saying, "Well, I've been debanked as well, but nobody knew why." And so I think. It's, it, I think it's really important to try and understand the, the deep workings of this system. I mean, on the one hand, you've got these kind of these kind of these shadowy technocrats, and the, the guy that that guy that runs the the Mexican guy that runs you know, the Bank of International Settlements, Augustin Carstens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're all there, but I think there's a, there's other stuff going on as well, which is that this whole the kind of stuff that gotten that gets people debanked already in some countries. Talking in terms of how you can be controlled and switched on and switched off as an economic actor, according to whatever, uh, is that he, he fell foul of the of kind of the institutionalization of these really uh, what are now legal norms in the area of what we you know the, the whole ESG uh, diversity and uh, equity index or whatever it's called. So uh, this is a this is one of the things that we need to try and get people to understand better. 
Because at the moment, people are saying, well, how can they be turning in, 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 in one of the, well, in a kind of Western democracy, how can they be turning my bank account off because I send a tweet they don't like? It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense once you understand that the ESG system, the framework, is, is that kind of top-down, it's the usual suspects, all the usual suspects, um, have put that into operation. BlackRock are running it. Larry Fink is, seems to be the head of it. And they are, what are they doing in ESG? They are punishing institutions, uh, corporations and social institutions for not saying and doing the right things. So we have now a very deeply entrenched um, system of uh, kind of enforcement system to keep uh, all institutions and businesses uh, on the page they're supposed to be on in terms of their whether it's uh, about um, the pandemic, all of the things that we've had in the last few years. We've got this, what I'm trying to say is I think that we've got this, ahead of us, we've got this sword of Damocles, which is the CBDCs coming in, where we know if uh, they can just switch you off as an economic actor, no problem, presumably. Uh, but already what we've got, as this that seems to be leading up to that, is a system in which uh, your conformity with the correct attitudes and behaviours has already been really deeply kind of entrenched in the system. So that once the CBD, uh, the C, the, the goes digital uh, currency comes in, and also the uh, UBI, which is another uh, thing I suppose we have to worry about, and put those two things together, and you've got it, you've more or less got everything, haven't you? You've got kind of redundant populations being kept on energy credits or something by the state and switched off as soon as they do the wrong thing or don't comply or let their vaccination record lapse or whatever it is, so-called vaccination. So, yeah, that seems to be the thing. All of, all of those things are there. On the other hand, I don't, I'm not economically savvy enough to understand the fine workings of how this system would be put together, how we can be shifted from a money economy into a digital economy. But it, I, I guess that has a really a lot of working parts. What, here's my what I'm thinking at the moment. There's all of those things you just mentioned, and they're all just just hovering on the horizon, like waiting for us to be shepherded into. But I don't know. They, if you think about all of the different things that we think they plan or that they say they plan, it does look like a, a lot, doesn't it? Like a lot of moving parts, maybe a lot to go wrong. More people seem to be... I'm seeing people in, in Britain and here in Poland, I know now, who are not really, who don't read books, who don't really do a lot, do the things we do, uh, who don't really follow ideas or politics or anything, who are starting to smell a rat. And I don't know, one of the things I'm trying to do just locally now is try and help, help people develop that process and to do it with my students. But, uh, you know, I, I, a year, 18 months ago, I was really despondent and depressed. But I'm not now, I'm much less so now. And I think it's because they've, the, in their arrogance and their hubris, which is outrageous if you, if you look at it in kind of world historical context, isn't it? Out, completely outrageous. Uh, they may have bitten off more than they could chew. Uh, and maybe if people like us just keep doing what it is that we're doing, it will be, uh, I think we can make it harder for them than they think. We, we, we have to, you know, I had on Ron Paul recently and he said we are modern day pamphleteers and, you know, truth is our greatest weapon. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I, I do see what you're saying. I feel like there are so many moving parts uh, to the system they want to create, and it's very precarious. I mean, even yeah. still to this day, this the, the stuff I have to do daily with my computer, um, things with, with the camera, with my computer, with the smartphones, it's like there's so many problems constantly that, that, that fail. So I don't even understand how they're going to um, you know, put this all together. So I, th- I think eventually I've had this discussion with James Corbett recently and others that, uh, you know, it, it will eventually fail. But then the question is, we could, you know, we could be living, you know, the Soviet Union, people lived in it an entire lifetime, you know, so it, it could be something like that. I, I did want to just go back, uh, there, you know, the, the things you mentioned in your book, just real quick, we were talking earlier, technocracy in North America, and you, you write that the technate would be continental in scope, eventually encompassing Canada, Mexico, and Central America within its, within its boundaries. Something I've also been thinking about lately is globalism, uh, more specifically, supranational regionalism. You know, I always say the EU is the blueprint for world government for this anti-democratic, totalitarian, technocratic system. People like Dr. Rath have explained how Brussels has Nazi roots. I think that's true. And then Soviet dissidents like Vladimir Bukovsky call it the new European Soviet. Um, but now we're seeing a drive by the leaders of the Americas here pushing for, you know, the, my Mexican president is calling for a North American union based on the EU. He's going to bring that up with uh, Biden next month when he meets with Biden. Uh, Bukele in El Salvador says we need a Central American union based on the EU. He literally said that. And same thing for the South American um, leaders. And so I think they are going along with this technate uh, idea uh, as well. And, and just just real briefly, uh, I've got this question. You, you talk about, um, you cite this guy, Thorstein Veblen, who called for a Soviet of technicians to manage the governmental affairs of the United States scientific uh, collect- collectivism, you also say, quote, the coming together in the USSR of technocratic revolutionary utopianism and Taylorism not only exceeded what was happening in the US in an ideological sense, but provided a theoretical template for the figure of the instrumentalized and hyper-regulated citizen worker, which is now coming into increasingly clear view in the age of Amazon. And so my question there would be, yeah, I've had on Michael Rechtenwald and we're trying, wh- what do we name this system? Because it seems like a beast system where it's got elements of monopoly capitalism oligarchy it's got elements of socialism communism uh it's got elements of fascism and technocracy uh so you know would you say it's got bits and pieces and in many ways i feel like the soviet communist system was also at the same time technocracy because what they were trying to do it was both communism and technocracy at the same time i think they really attempted a technocracy because the 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 forstein weibland thing he was a very important guy you know in his a hundred years ago he uh there was him and there was taylorism frederick winslow taylor in scientific management and the scientific management idea is was very technocratic this is was is uh taylorism and scientific management was the uh integrating of humans into physical machine systems into factory work and all of that and the point was that he drew, he drew up a grid he drew up a grid of you know to to the to the number of seconds or the number of minutes that each employee will be doing it. so there's complete division of labor into tiny tasks in the in a classic modern factory setting and he ended up with a each worker would the whole the whole thing was rolling forward on the basis of a grid and scientific management of, of workers Lenin loved this stuff Lenin was wrote a number of things that were and he want that's what he wanted for the Soviet Union and so there's much more of a kind of interconnection between American corporate technocracy, 
as it's emerging in the early part of the uh, 1900s and what the Soviets want to do. I mean, he really was all over um, that and he was he was a great lover of uh, of, of that. and the uh, that um, Yevgeny Zamyatin book, We, which I think is often said to be one of the first dystopian novels, is a really, as far as I read it, about what would happen if uh, American style scientific management kind of escaped the factory and became uh, the, 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 the program for the whole society. That, that's one of the first uh, kind of dystopian things. So I think there's a close connection there between, um, between those two things. Uh, but um, I've started to notice another thing now. <clears throat> I had a little bit of a kind of on, on a kind of uh, email exchange with Michael Rectomaldo a couple of months back, and what he was saying, and which I kind of kind of figured is right, is I mean these these this all comes from the, these American actors all come from Monopoly. They come from the JD from the Rockefeller Foundation origins of so-called philanthropy and uh, mega wealth, don't they? It's very very easy to see that trajectory. And what they've always wanted is to extend their monopoly of things as far as possible. And what is more, what is a bigger monopoly than communism, a communist state where a tiny elite uh, lives in its duchess and, and owns what it owns and the rest of us are um, drones in the system, e eating the bugs in the, in the current iteration. Uh, so I think if you look at what, what I'm interested in at the moment, I'm looking at two things. I've, I've started to notice that it seems that in China, there's more and more talk of ESG, you know, on the Western model as a, as a management system for, for the economy and for industry. And if you look out now at BlackRock and their really strict enforcement of uh, ESG, DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion uh, rubrics and all of that, um, this is really very far left now. Some of Larry Fink's speeches, he sounds like a communist politician he talk, he's almost it, it's a he's talking about a command economy that blackrock wants to command and it's, it's not being hidden and i i I, I think i read or heard somewhere recently that larry fink has, has kind of presented his case to china but it's kind of too left-wing for them it's too communistic for them because they're into uh socialism with chinese characteristics so you've got socialism with chinese characteristics and you've got now capitalism with chinese characteristics and I'm wondering if some, at some point this merges as kind of China and the BlackRock style um, monopoly economy of the West. Um, um, does it merge at some point? Uh, do we have, uh, do we have, uh, this, is, this is what I've been thinking recently. I think we maybe there is something at these, these higher levels and I've thought all the way along that the Chinese Communist Party is a part of that group, in any case, at the global scale, <clears throat> that um, communism, I mean, you can also see corporate fascist, old school corporate fascist elements in all of this as well, especially in the West, like corporate fascism, which is what I think BlackRock represent. Um, Larry Fink is on the record. He says markets love totalitarian governments. He's, nobody's, he's not hiding the ball. So from these two different perspectives, from the Chinese desire to kind of just take a break from the Marxist theory and get to proper socialism in about 100 years time. I think that was Deng Xiaoping's idea. So you get, uh, they're going to get to proper communism once they've got a proper uh, cap functioning capitalist economy. And on in the West, you've got this increasing um, tendency in, the, in a similar direction and with kind of Maoist 
a Maoist political movement to boot as part of the, the stuff that James Lindsay talks about, or this kind of uh, woke as Maoism, as a, as a new cultural revolution, which I think is very serious contention. And there are, I think, a lot of parallels now between the way that wokeness, which which is not, I think, a, such a superficial thing as some people contend. I think woke is, a, in the West at least, in, in North America, woke is a deep thing because it's deeply entrenched now in all of the economic and political and social institutions. So I think you've got Mao, a form of a new kind of uh, strain of the Maoist virus running rampant through certain sectors of the, in the media and universities and so on, but also in the big money players who are subscribing to what seem like Maoist values and uh, practices. Uh, just, I don't know. It's all a bit of a melange, but I, there, I, there, there seems to be, in my the way I'm looking at it, some clear moves in the direction of um, some form of conjoined or kind of communistic global system, at least on uh, as it's envisaged, coming from actors. We take the Chinese Communist Party on one hand and BlackRock on the other, who you would think had very little in common. It turns out they have a great deal in common. They want as far as they can get to total control of, of um, e economies and populations, I guess. <clears throat> and coming from their different directions, it looks like they want to, doesn't it? Like they kind of are on a similar trajectory. But it did make me laugh when I, I, I read that um, the Chinese are looking at the Black Rock style ESG system, but it's a little bit too left wing for them at the moment. Yeah, just a number of things there. I think you're spot on. You know, I've got also, I, you know, I've got right behind me, people can see Shoshana Zubov's book, uh, and then Yevgeny Zamyatin's. And, you know, 20 years ago, when I was getting into this, uh, learning all about this dystopia science fiction, I always go, you know, everyone gets hung up on 1984 and Brave New World. I'm like, no, I want to go to the original. And I, I read Yevgeny Zamyatin. Uh, we, which I think was published in the 19 teens or 20s, and then and then yeah, later you got you get in the 30s, Brave New World, which I think he riffs off of a bit Zamyatin, and then Orwell, who also riffs off of Huxley and of uh, Zamyatin. So you want to go as far back as you can. And you know, I, I've had on this podcast uh, Mark Leonard, who is the head of the European Council on Foreign Relations, who's uh, buddy buddy with uh, George. Um, Soros and his book a couple years back when we discussed, he was talking precisely about what you're talking about, how that there's this, he called it, uh, I think he used the term um, like memetic, that there's this convergence between China yeah. and the US and Anthony yeah. Sutton talks about this. I think this is their age old dream um, and, and, and just uh, before I continue on that, the woke Maoism, I recently experienced myself an example of that here in Mexico. So it's not as overtly like what you're seeing in the u.s the 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 in, in, insane cartoonish style of wokeism wokeism maoist wokeism but it, it's here in mexico so i've met some of these liberal elite mexicans who work in the mexican government in ngos and i was at a dinner with one of them uh and they tend to be you know lgbt very pro united nations un is sacred uh yeah. the, Me the mexican government is awesome total statists and one of the lgbt guys was working for the Mexican government, his job was to um, gender equality, right? To make sure in all of the Mexican government and institutions that you have equal uh, males, females, LGBT, whatever people. And he asked me on my podcast, he looked at my podcast, he's like, where are all the women? And I'm like, what? Like, my mind was just blown. Like, 
I work on meritocracy. I look for a topic that interests me with this podcast. Yeah. I search yeah. in, you know, what whatever experts pop up. Like it doesn't even factor in my mind gender. I don't think it should. I just look for a topic. Okay. Expert yeah. pops up. Okay, well, as this expert expert on, like if it's a woman, great. If it's a man, whatever. Like I don't even care. But now this is how they're thinking. So I think this is an example of this woke Maoism and ESG stuff that we're seeing now deployed in Mexico and and, and other. Uh, countries, but uh, you, you mentioned the, the the convergence, and you talk about H.G. Wells got his books as well. Very important. You write quote: "As far as Wells is concerned, three of the core themes upon which he dwelt and for which he often passionately proselytized are of particular relevance re- relevance to us now: elite technocratic scientism, world um, government." Um, you know, these two are in fact thought of by Wells to come together in a single global political entity and eugenics, which was rebranded as a population control, uh, by the Rockefeller interest in the aftermath of the Holocaust. You talk about molecular, uh, biology. And so I I think everything at the end of the day comes down to world government, which is the same as this convergence you're talking about, because you need the convergence (laughs) to have the world government, also the regional, uh, unions. And then they're obsessed with, um, eugenics as well so you know before getting onto eugenics any thought about the world state i argue that we are we are already in world government when i you know i got banned from patreon because um i i was going against the who that's world government the world health organization the world government uh said i'm committing a thought crime so they shut off my patreon like that that's you know or youtube you know or you know your, your, your thoughts well, I think the issue that everybody needs to focus on now is this uh, pandemic preparedness treaty that they're cooking up for, that they're really uh, working very, very hard on now. And I'm not sure some of the big things that have been happening in the in the recent period are not distractions from this. Um, I won't name anything in particular, but if they if they manage to push through, I think it's next June, this um, this so-called treaty, then then I think a, I think of it more as like a, a, a world system of governance, a governance system, rather than um, <clears throat> I think you've got the, all these interlocking institutions. You just mentioned a bunch of them in the private and public sectors and these, so, so, all these transnational institutions. And at the top of that, I think probably in, in positions of, of influence, there are probably a very small number of people. You know, that Peter Phillips book, um, what's it called? Goliath or... One of those. <clears throat> uh, in in two thousand nine, David Rothkopf published um, what was it, Superclass, Superclass yeah. and he said, "Okay, there are about six thousand people running the show, and they more or less know one another. If they don't, they can get that." Uh, the, uh, the some of the more recent updates on that, because that's already quite old, I think, are talking now about you know some three or four or five hundreds of people. So, <clears throat> I don't think you need a, to go very a conspiracy focused on this because if you look at how much this common agenda, the common values, the same goals are now permeate all of those institutions, they all say the same things, they all speak from the same script. Uh, It's not that, I think of it more not as a bunch of guys sitting, uh, uh, guys and girls sitting around a table being a world government, but more a, a system of interlocking institutions which will act as a, which are starting to act as a de facto world government. Um, that's somehow that's how, uh, you mentioned Ian Davis, he has this really good black and white graphic of the global power structure. You saw that? Yeah. yeah. See, I looked at that quite for quite a long time and studied it, and I've been using it in some conferences and teaching, and it looks about right to me. I mean, you could pro- perhaps 
ask a few questions about some of the middle level players. They seem quite regional. But if you look at the, 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 in that system, the, the national governments are like a third tier, a third tier facilitating uh, entities. So I think we're very, very, we are very close. E even if the, even if the, uh, please God, the the CBD stuff and social credit system that doesn't it doesn't come very soon. I think we're still very close to a, um, this kind of interlocked transnational institution of uh, technocratic governance. And if the the real thing, the real next thing to watch is this: if they, I'm sure most of the most of your uh, viewers and listeners know this anyway, but let's say it. Um, if the if the WHO get away with this, then is it 190 odd countries will have surrendered executive authority on on a great many things to a global institution, a global institution which is very strongly influenced by the Chinese Communist Party, by the way. Uh, so that's all quite interesting. And so, um, yeah, I, I just recently had James Raguski on who's one of the top guys following this and Tedro, I call him Tedros the terrorist yesterday. Tedros the terrorist yeah. put out a clip. Tedros the terrorist wants world government. Now he was coming out again and saying, yeah, the, we, we need the pandemic accord, you know, yeah. just give us the world government. Now they're, they're, it's, and you look at the comments, like everyone hates him. It's, it's this, I always use the Solzhenitsyn quote, like we know that, you know, that we know you're lying. And they yeah. just, they don't care. They're just, I feel like they're, as you mentioned, we're close to that Rubicon and they're just that final push to get us uh, um, uh, across the cliff. Um, and, you know, in, in, in your book, you talk a lot about the RAND Corporation, which is key. You, you, you write in 1973, the RAND Associated Consultant, Neil Jacoby, called on the UN to create a world corporation um, authority. You talk about the Rockefeller's the trilateral commission at length we don't have to get into that here um now uh but you know eugenics i feel like as you talk about in your book one of the threads core to the whole world government thing and then the algorithm ghetto thing is also eugenics which you know you, you talk about in your book edwin black and how in, in the u.s um it was a big movement in the U u.s for eugenics uh hitler uh that they supported a lot of hitler's eugenics and then it was renamed population control um i think the environmental movement is the same thing it's just you know this whole climate your environmentalism is just eugenics and now the latest iteration is also genetics all this mrna stuff uh gene therapy stuff that they're pushing now all this genetics uh you know dna things it's it's just eugenics uh so you know and and any any further thoughts on the, the, this strain of eugenics and what they're pretending is it to decrease the population i know they want to get rid of any um you know people they view as uh you know not, not perfect they kind of like want to perfect uh humans oh well, they, they they say uh, they believe or at least they say they believe in in uh well the whole, the whole problem of all this is this uh, kind of insane belief in the perfectibility of the human being, I think, which is an, a problem we have from the Enlightenment, and uh, that's a, but perhaps a different story. Uh, they, they, I can't. I think there are a number of possible scenarios, um, because some of the some of the stuff, things that we're worried about, seem a bit contradictory, don't they? On the one hand, uh, they're frightening us with the AI monster. I think that it's one of those another thing we have to be terrified of. Uh, 
and that's going to put most people out of work. So if you could, if you're going to put most people out of work, what do you need to keep hang? What do you need to keep humans around for? I mean, that would be the dark, wouldn't it? The kind of dark thing of that. Um, it seems to me plausible based on what a lot of these members of the so-called elites have said over the years uh, that it looks to me like this net zero stuff is would be a pretty solid plan for a significant depopulation of the planet. If you are going to ban um, nitrogen fertilizers, close down farming, I think already 13 or 14 countries and some American states have said no more farming or on the verge of it. So I think the closing down of farming in the name of saving the planet uh, looks to me like the best the best bet from their perspective for population reduction because it will happen quite slowly and a lot of people won't necessarily figure it out in time. The injections looked looked to me like a big experiment. Uh, and I mean, terrible things have happened, I know, which is just bubbling to the surface now. So all of a sudden, why is that happening? I guess, why, is, why are they now, why is the media now beginning to um, acknowledge the problems with some of the problems with the injections and with the myocarditis and the sudden death syndrome and all of that. But that looked to me like an experiment because the plan is to turn everything to mRNA technology medicine, isn't it? That's the, the, all the medicines. So there's, there, there's obviously a game afoot there, which is to do with genetic intervention in the, in the, I would guess they're a long way off. That's very, it seems kind of science fictional, but I, I think the, one of the things the pandemic was, was a, was an experiment uh, beginning of a trial and error experiment with these technologies, with these uh, technology platforms and, and syringes. Just uh, to add on that, what, one of my past guests, JJ Cooey, who's advisor for Robert Kennedy Junior Children's Health Defense, uh, I think, it, again, we have to put out all these different scenarios. And I don't think something like COVID was just they didn't have just one objective. As you mentioned, right. there's various. And uh, also, Cooey's got a fascinating take. I think it's plausible that, uh, and you talk about this in your book, how these elites, you know, they want immortality. They're they're not they're nuts. You know, they they, they want yeah, this Luciferian sort of um, al alchemical idea of living forever. You talk about Ray Kurzweil. I think you come to the conclusion in the book is as, as do I, as does JJ Cooey. This is not technologically possible. You know, we have souls or spirits that I don't think without with any technology, you cannot get to it. You know, it's it's just it's beyond. Um, but JJ Cooey says that what they were doing with COVID, for example, was th they need us to an extent. They need because yeah. they, they, they're using us for the, the DNA swabs, the DNA testing. They, they need to use that data to throw into their AI as yeah. they, they try to figure out um, they're hoping this information um they need to mine us for information that they want to use yeah. to try to achieve the immortality what do you think about that you can't keep you can't keep the machine the machine learning program going unless you've got humans to study i think this is one of the things that uh, ensures some some kind of in the plan or in the project some kind of continued existence as um for keeping a good reason it's necessary to keep uh humans around for them to be data data mined isn't it i mean that's but as far as the other thing is concerned this transhuman stuff uh, it, this what i think what strikes me above everything in a way is how little these actors i mean you're looking at we know who the people are okay? we know this this group of people and we know some of their uh, public facing faces but if you read what they say, the, 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 the people making the, the Klaus Schwab's, the Bill Gates, all these kinds of people, they seem to me, the most significant thing to me about them is how 
they they talk so big and have such big plans and talk in this cod profound way but none of them seem to have even the slightest idea of what a human even is of what it means to be a kind of ensouled embodied uh spirit a spiritual creature uh everything is based on this incredible reductionism and kind of nomin uh, nominalism where we're nothing really we, i mean this is the harari's basic take isn't it that we're, we're nothing and, and I, 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 I don't think that can win because they are so, in the end, in this kind of struggle, they are so spiritless, so ignorant about what humans even are, that, uh, and that throws the, 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 the kind of aggrandized stupidity of their goals into kind of quite sharp relief, I think. You cannot, <laughs> you, you cannot, uh, uh, I've, I've got a section on this in the book. You're, uh, you're not going to upload your brain into a, a cloud. This is this will, will. I have it on good authority for a number of people I sought in the book who act, uh, who I uh, uh, quote in the book who actually know how brains work and how you can. Um, that 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 will never be possible under anything we can yet imagine as so, as so-called science. It will never be possible. You can't have a uh, the real sub. The, 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 this is an interesting thing for me, and this it goes back to how we can maybe try and save children or protect them, which is the true substrate of the of the mind isn't the brain; it's the whole body. That kind of old mind body. This is another funny thing about these so-called elites. They talk a lot about the future and they make all these dopey futurological predictions, but they work with completely outdated, debunked, uh, dualistic ideas of what a person is. So your brain is just a kind of computer. So we can, if your brain is just a computer, you are more or less a machine. We're actually very close to being cyborgs anyway. Nothing could be further from the truth. And they, they really have no idea. So uh, you can't have a human consciousness unless it's situated in a body. And this will always be the case. I think mean, that's the way God planned it. So, isn't it? I mean, uh, there, there, there are so many fallacies and logical holes and untruths in, in, in almost everything they say that it, it uh, they're trying to terrorise us with all their technology and their, their money and how smart they are, but they, they don't seem very smart to me. Yeah, except in the in the in the in the way of shrewdness and Machiavellian manipulation of. You know political systems or economic systems and media platforms but my god they're dumb and they know nothing about humans and they know nothing about all the best things about us and they know nothing about god and that's why i'm not i'm not so despondent at the moment because i'm i i think more and more people will begin to see through them and they'll be less afraid of them i i, uh, I you know, yeah I, I sure hope so and yeah i i you know um I guess you know we'll see. I I am kind of pessimistic in general that we will move towards some negative scenario in the future. Uh, maybe you know it's cyclical. We come out of it. Um, and and you know I, I had on Joe Allen. He's got a point. Uh, he fears more that we won't end up in this perfectly function functioning scientific dictatorship. It's going to be like idiocracy with algorithms. Yeah. You know, which could be also pretty bad, like a really poor version of dystopia, which you know would have some benefits yeah. because it's poorly yeah. run, and so there are a lot of loopholes, kind of like in Mexico, where the government doesn't function well, and so yeah. you've got a bit of anarchy, which gives you more uh, freedom, and 
yeah, you, you know, you, I have a friend who spends quite a lot of time in Mexico, and he says if you get if you're in the right place in the right space, you have plenty of freedom. If, you know, you're kind of got off off grid type freedom, but that's great. That's got uh, a kind of idiocracy run by AI. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that. Yeah, that seems quite plausible. Isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I just don't know. I, I, I I'm just, I just, I don't know. We, we have to see, but I think that the real, uh, the real thing to watch for is this pandemic mm-hmm. treaty, and then after that, in September next year. So that's what, like May, June, isn't it? Twenty-four, and then after that, later in the year, in September, they're having kind of the UN is hosting a symposium on the future or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that what they're calling it? And I think that's it. I think they're looking to kind of lock things in and really move forward next year, aren't they? Um, maybe I'll, we'll be saying I'll be saying something different this time next year. But well, th- th- that's the whole thing, you know. As as new evidence comes about, um, we're in these different battles, so we we so we see how the battles uh go uh and the tides shift um you know so you, you also talk about in your book again they, they want to merge man with machine um and then you know basically create this global digital digital brain borg hive mind i've had the great jacob norden guard on who talks a lot about uh that and then i i didn't get to your last chapter six but uh, I, I think so. You, I guess your your biggest focus is, and I think you're right, is on the next generation, yeah. the the youth uh, and, and education. So, would you say that's um, you know? I think so. I think that if you think about that thing that was happening uh, a month or two ago, where there where there was that um, was it World Coin, where they had that orb, and it looked like a lot of people, kids, teenagers, or young adults, were queuing up to have their eyes scanned, their retina scanned. And they claimed that two million people had done that. It could have just been marketing. I don't know. And it was obviously it was like a spectacle, wasn't it? But it, I saw some clips and pictures of that that made me gave me pause for thought because what I saw was I don't know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds who had the smartphone since well they've grown up with a smartphone, so they they've been very deeply in, in, embedded into this kind of system and its behaviours and values and kind of principles and all of that. And it looked a bit worrying, I thought, because it just reminded me of Brave New World. It looked like if they start to unroll some really spectacular, addictive, pleasurable, immersive technologies, that's going to really carry a lot of young pe- people in general. But it's really, you can imagine that carrying people through without them thinking much about it or very much like in a Brave New World scenario. Uh, so uh, one, uh, I think a couple of things. One is that on the current trajectory, a very, very sizable proportion of young people are going to just kind of get, become entrained as good, you know, fourth industrial revolution citizens by default, almost. And then there's the question of what we can, because uh, I think you can only kind of help the you, be local and help the people around you and deal with the people you can where children are concerned. So <clears throat> I, I end up in the book with some with a with a section on a short section on solutions. And I think um anybody who's got kids or has a say uh, about kids should really be getting in the middle of all of this. You can't talk kids out of this addiction. I think you have to do what you were talking about, what you've done with your kids, which is I'm finding it quite hard with this particular teenager because for various reasons. But um you've really got to present them with uh, a, a kind of reminder of what the world used to be like before all this started. That is, you're in your body, you're doing things with other people, you're coming to 
understand yourself through your interactions with other people you're building up a sense of you know a healthy sense of sense of self interactively and cooperatively with other people and i'm a big i'm a sociologist but my favorite kind of sociology is like micro sociology which is all about not big structures and big abstract ideas but it's about how groups of people build their world together their community together and kind of maintain it and sustain it together as, as people just as people uh, and all that and the further we get away from that with with kids spending so much time engaging in remote interactions because they've been sold this lie that uh, connectivity is the same as connection is i think it's the biggest lie that the silicon valley culture has managed to put out there i mean we can talk but i'm thinking about young kids coming you know small children becoming slightly bigger children who, who if they are not in their bodies with one another doing that kind of work which is really social world building, life world building. Um, you're not going. You're not going to do any of that from behind a screen. You've, I think you've got. I, I got very. When I was doing the book, I got very interested in some of the neuroscience. Not to go down too much of a scientific route, but there's so much evidence now that you really need to be in your body, close to another person. There's a kind of optimal space. You've got to be looking them in the eye. Then you can connect with them. But not only that, but as a child, then your brain gets wired up the right way. There's got to be a face there. There's got to be a face with eyes. And that's where there's all that stuff about mirror neurons and, uh, and all of that. And that's where empathy comes from, you know. The, the bit. So I really think, and I, it seems like uh, it's really only a mountain to climb. And I, uh, But there are very simple things you can do, uh, which involve getting away from screens and putting kids in situations in which they are... They can develop uh, as people and also develop a sense of uh, social ethics, uh, you know, around other people so people can respect one another. Uh, and I start the book, actually, with the kind of bad news about suicide rates uh, in the United States and the mental health crisis among uh, millennials and Zoomers and all of that. And uh, it's just a shame that so many people have been seduced unthinkingly by this technology. I think it's, it's just a shame. I, I think, you know, th that is the, we have the kill switch, as you mentioned, get rid of the smartphones and just go to analog. I've been talking about this, you know, I've just been wanting, I, I, you know, I would love not to have to do, uh, I'm tethered to the digital space because of my podcast and TNT radio show, but I'd be happy to just go live on a farm away from, just completely analog. You know, I've done it before. I've lived in the Yurch in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. And so um, I, I think that that is the answer, as you say. And I think even if this stuff does progress, there's going to be portions of society in all countries that are going to separate, you know, live like Amish style. Um, so I think th that is sort of the kill switch. And it is sad how I just see here in Mexico now, just everyone around me, you know, I just see just people in an exaggerated fashion they're ordering on like uber eats for breakfast i'm like you seriously can't make your own breakfast you know or just amazon boxes through strewn constantly every day throughout here in mexico you know amazon's costco's uh uber eats um the qr codes now you go to many places like yeah. the people are just eating it up as you say and so uh we have to resist that and um i, I do want to ask you though you're an outside the box thinker and you're working in academia still. Uh, how do you survive in the Rockefeller 
social sciences. In your book, you talk about how the Rockefellers created the whole social science. Yeah. And I worked, I, I worked in that as well. Have you ever run into trouble? Well, two things. One is, um, well, I'm working in Poland. And I think the real, the real deepest, well, there are still a lot of very level-headed. It's, it's not like it is in, in uh, the UK or the US. Let me put it that way. There are still a lot of quite level-headed people here. So, but when it comes to, so that's one thing. I mean, uh, it, in Australia, and I, I used to tell my students this 20 years ago when I first came here, because I couldn't stand teaching in British universities anymore. I had to get, I had to get out of there. It was one of the reasons I came to live in. And I said, you will not believe this, but I have more freedom of expression in the Polish classrooms. I can, uh, within reason, we can, we can do what we want here. And I've, for a long time, I've, I've been working on international programs. So we get, I get uh, students, master's students from America, uh, from all over. The ones who've come from America, uh, it takes them a while to warm up to the idea that actually, uh, well, you know, I can say what I, you know, this guy's going to let me say what I want. If, you know, if I make a case, it was within reason. Well, if, if it's not kind of too far out. But I, my too far out is quite far out. So, well, so there's one thing. One thing is uh, working here, I think it's just starting to change because, because the institutions, the, D, the ESG and all that will make it change. I think it's top down, isn't it? Uh, so I see signs, but it, but it's still so. So, so there's that. Uh, but I have been appalled, appalled by academics, especially uh, in the last three years in the anglophone world. And all of my reservations about it has been of, of kind of the group think. I think this probably comes from the uh, Rockefeller social science origins. It's kind of gatekeeping, group think. Um, and uh, that kind of uh, what did Ted? Uh, I'm not going to advocate for bombing anybody, but what did Ted Kaczynski say? He said they are the most over-socialized group in American society, uh, and so they, uh, the majority of them, since most many of them lean kind of way left progressive, is that they they because they are kind of over-socialized and pampered. Uh, but want to think, uh, they, they can't think critically. Like, it's very difficult for them to think critically. Group uh, thinking prevails. And um, so you get all of these kind of pseudo, all these pop rebellious postures as they try to assert themselves. But I think that's a problem, with, especially in the English-speaking world. It, the thing with me is I didn't really come from that world. I grew up in a working class. I didn't go to university until I was 27. I'd already lived around in a fairly kind of gritty part of London. That's where I grew up. So I came into the universities as an adult with a, already started a family uh, quite late. And I got my first degree when I was 30. So I had already lived for real in the real world before I even before I knew what degrees were or what study was really, because I left school when I was 16. And then I just started to read books myself, you know, I didn't want to go to university. So I came in from the outside and I was, I was never really convinced by it from the beginning. You know, I could always, I, uh, when I first got to university, it was in like 87 or 88, all the professors were Marxists. I thought, what, what is this? <laughs> in Britain, in, the, in London, uh, they were all Marxists or they were just getting out of Marxism because uh, the smart ones were getting out of Marxism into postmodernism, late 80s. So anyway, that, I'm trying to. Uh, I that's I've always been. I've always looked at the profession that I'm in, kind of sideways. 
Me, me, me too. And you know, I worked as a high school teacher and um, undergraduate international relations teacher. And I just found across the board, you know, still even now, you know, even here in Mexico or Kazakhstan where I taught or elsewhere, the majority of people who work at the in academia, whether administrators or, or, or teachers and even students now, their majority are left-leaning, socialist, yeah. communist, or more specifically, I call them now liberal globalists, totalitarian uh, humanists. They buy into the official, whatever official narrative. It's absolutely um, insane. And I was one of those few people kicking against the pricks, so to speak, uh, just like uh, you are. And I do have that quote you just mentioned. I've got a meme folder on my computer here. And I have this one from Kaczynski, you know, uh, violence, you know, I think we advocate total, you know, nonviolent methods. Yeah. So we have to put that disclaimer. But Kaczynski yeah. says, quote, they like, though they like to fancy themselves independent thinkers, the university intellectuals are the most over-socialized, the most conformist, the tamest and most domesticated, the most pampered, dependent and spineless group in America today. Uh, I'd say across the world. And I've worked with, I'm so glad I don't have to teach anymore for now. Um, I'm doing my, I'm able to do what I'm doing. Uh, and if I can, I'll just sell tacos. You know, I'd, I'd rather sell tacos <laughs> than go back to, uh, working in academia. But, um, you, again, your book is fantastic. I highly recommend people get it. The, you can get a digital form, uh, physical, virtually lost young Americans in the digital technocracy. The link is in the, the description. Um, any, any final thought, uh, for us, Gary? Uh, be of good cheer. God, uh, I don't see, these people can make a terrible mess in the world, but something tells me their hubris uh, will not go, will not will not fulfill itself. Oh, that's nothing scientific or sociological about that. I, yeah, I don't think we can do any better. Be of, I, I've been lately saying, you know, be of good cheer, cheer one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, uh, Ecclesiastes, you know, eat, drink, uh, be merry, be, be of good cheer. Um, you know, we study with all this insanity that's going on. Um, but, uh, you know, what else can you do? Be, I always joke, uh, you know, grab your pop, popcorn and best favorite drink and enjoy the show. You know? Sit back <laughs> and enjoy the show until they switch you off. But, but that's another, that's a story for another day. <laughs> well, you know, we all die. So, you know, ten, statistically, yeah, yeah, yeah. statistically yeah. 10 out of 10 people <laughs> uh, die. And so uh, thank you for uh, joining me on Geopolitics and Empire. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, 
But you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.